If you were here with us last week, then you know that we just concluded our series through 2 Peter. The very last verse of that letter says, But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. As I mentioned last week, that was the theme of Peter's life. And you could also say that it is the theme of the New Testament. Throughout the New Testament, we are exhorted to grow in our walk with and relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, it's not always stated in those exact terms or in that exact way, but the idea is the same throughout the New Testament. For example, 2 Corinthians 7.1 says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Hebrews 12.14 says, Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Colossians 3 tells us, to put off the traits of the old man and put on the qualities of the new man. Ephesians 4 uses the same picture to describe spiritual growth. Put off the old qualities, put on the new qualities. So this theme, this idea, this concept is throughout the New Testament. We are continually exhorted to grow in our walk with and our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. That begs the question... How? How do we grow? Or, to say it another way, how can we grow? If we are commanded to grow, it should make us wonder, how? How can can I make sure that happens in my life? What is involved in the process? What does it look like? What does it involve practically? How do I know if I'm growing? What is the evidence of growth? Those are the questions that I want to answer in this message. I was prompted to address this subject in some detail when I was reading Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones' commentary on 2 Peter. He has three excellent chapters on the topic, and much of my material this morning is from his book. So with that as background, let's get started. Another term for spiritual growth, which is our focus this morning, another term for spiritual growth is the biblical and theological term sanctification. The word sanctification or sanctified simply means set apart. To be sanctified is to be set apart from sin and set apart unto the Lord. That's what spiritual growth is really all about. It is being set apart from sin and being set apart to live for the Lord. Many Christians refer to this as progressive sanctification. It is called progressive sanctification to distinguish it from positional sanctification. Turn with me by way of introduction to Hebrews chapter 10, and we'll distinguish these concepts. Over near the end of the New Testament is the epistle of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 10. And notice what the writer says in verse 10, Hebrews 10, 10, and I realize that all the English translations don't read exactly the same, but they are saying the same thing. Hebrews 10, 10 says, By that will we have been sanctified 
through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. This verse tells us that the death of the Lord Jesus Christ has sanctified us or made us holy once for all. That is clearly a reference to positional sanctification. Positionally, we are perfect, we are holy, we are sanctified. However, our practice in life doesn't always match our position, which is why we need to grow. And that growth process is called progressive sanctification. Skip down to verse 14. Verse 14 says, For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. This is really a great verse on this subject because it refers to both positional sanctification and progressive sanctification. The first part of the verse says the same thing as verse 10. It says, we have been perfected forever. Past tense, done deal, it's already happened. That is positional sanctification. But the last part of this verse uses the phrase, those who are being sanctified. By the way, on a side note, a little technical point here, the participle at the end of this verse is in the present tense, which means it should be translated, those who are being sanctified. That's the way it's translated in the New King James Version and the ESV. I don't think our other English translations quite bring that out. New King James ESV are are clearer on this point. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. This process of being sanctified is synonymous with spiritual growth. So again, we come back to the question, how do we grow? We are commanded to grow, so how do we do it? The starting point for spiritual growth is to make sure you have life. What I mean is, when the Bible talks about us growing, the assumption is that we have new life in which we can grow. If you are not a Christian, you can't grow in a relationship with Jesus Christ. You must first enter into that relationship by faith. There can be no growth unless there has been a new birth. So the starting point for spiritual growth is to make sure that you have received new life. Do you know Christ? Have you received Him? Do you have a relationship with Him? Are you alive spiritually? Are you a new creation in Christ? If not, you can't grow. If so, you ought to grow. Life should lead to growth. If a plant is alive and healthy, it will grow. If a tree is alive and healthy, it will grow. If it's not growing, then it's not healthy. The same thing can be said of us. If we are alive spiritually, we ought to grow. If we are alive spiritually and not growing, we are not healthy. So we should grow. The very fact that God calls this process growth in His Word shows us that it is not something that is merely mechanical. Dr. Lloyd-Jones said it this way, You can add to something which is lifeless, but you cannot make something which lacks life grow. Now think about that. 
You can add to something which is lifeless, but you cannot make something which lacks life grow. As an illustration, you can stack up a pile of rocks in your yard, in your driveway, in a field, but that pile of rocks does not grow from life within itself. Only when there is a healthy life present within a living organism can there be true growth. That's the assumption behind the New Testament exhortations for us to grow. The assumption is that we have new life in Christ and that we are healthy. Then there can be growth and will be growth. Here's another important assumption behind the word growth in the New Testament. The the very fact that it is called growth implies that it is not something that is sudden. You see, there are some Christians who wrongly believe that if you have some kind of experience with the Holy Spirit, you are immediately and suddenly sanctified. You are immediately and suddenly mature. It's an experience they are looking for. A one-time experience instead of the New Testament idea of gradual growth. Beloved, you cannot go, you cannot go from spiritual immaturity to spiritual maturity in a sudden jump by some supposed experience. It just doesn't work that way. Just as you can't go from being a little baby in life to being a grown man in a single event. It doesn't happen that way. It is a process that involves time. As one man put it, when God wants to grow a squash, he takes six weeks. When he wants to grow a mighty oak, he takes 30 years. Spiritual growth is a process, not an event, not an experience. So how do we grow? Are you ready for this? We can't make ourselves grow. We can't. We cannot produce growth. And there is a sense in which you should not even try to produce growth. You say, now, Brian, that contradicts everything you've been saying. Well, sort of, but not really. My point here is the same point Jesus made in John 15. Back up with me to the Gospel of John, the fourth Gospel record, the 15th chapter. Follow along as I read the first five verses of John 15. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him bears much fruit. For without me or apart from me, you can do nothing. Now notice the progression of thought that Jesus has made through these verses. At the beginning of verse 2, he talks about fruit. At the end of verse 2, he talks about more fruit. And then here in verse 5, he is encouraging much fruit. Fruit, more fruit, much fruit. 
But be careful not to get sidetracked into concentrating on fruit and miss the main point of the passage. What is the main point of this passage? What is Jesus' main point? The word abide is obviously the key concept of these verses because the word abide is used ten times in the first eleven verses of this chapter. So the point Jesus is making is that He is the source of fruitfulness. He is the source of our growth. It is not our methods, our working, our striving, or our commitment that produces fruit or produces growth. It's His life. As one man put it, God's method is not that Christ helps you bring forth fruit any more than the vine helps the branch. It's not even that Christ works and you help Him all you can. Only those who have learned the lesson of the utter hopelessness of the branch can fully appreciate this wonderful truth, end quote. You say, yeah, but, but shouldn't I be concerned about doing something to produce fruit? No. No, it's not the fruit you need to concentrate on. It's life. It's relationship. The purpose of Bible study, scripture memory, prayer, etc., is not to produce fruit but to cultivate life, to cultivate relationship. And when the life of the Lord Jesus is flowing through us and pulsating through us, then he will bear fruit through us. So when it comes to the issue of spiritual growth, we must realize that there is a sense in which we cannot, we cannot make ourselves grow. Only the, only the Lord himself can actually grow us, and he causes that to happen as we abide in him. However, please hear this, that doesn't mean that we are passive. It doesn't mean we have no responsibility. If that were the case, then there wouldn't be all the exhortations in the New Testament for us to grow. We can't make ourselves grow, but we can observe certain conditions that promote growth and are essential to growth. You see, beloved, there are certain conditions that lead to growth and encourage growth and promote growth. What are those conditions? Let me list them by paralleling them with how physical growth takes place in our own bodies from infancy to toddlerhood, childhood, etc., and as we move through those stages from infancy to adulthood, I call these the elements of spiritual growth. What are the elements of spiritual growth? Here they are. Here's the list. Number one, number one, put in the right stuff. Put in the right stuff. In the physical realm, this means that we put food and drink and air into the body. In the spiritual realm, this means we put Scripture in our lives. We commune with God in prayer. Turn over to 1 Peter chapter 2, over near the end of the New Testament, just prior to the letter we have been studying, 2 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2. Verse 1. Peter says, Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking. Here we go, verse 2, 1 Peter 2, 2. As newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. 
Peter says, and this is his illustration, just as a newborn baby desires milk, you as a Christian should desire the milk of the Word of God. He is not saying, by the way, he is not saying that as a baby Christian you should desire the Word. That's not his parallel. That's not his illustration. He is saying as babies desire milk, you as a Christian should desire the Word of God. Babies want milk. They crave milk. They long for milk. Christians should long for the Word of God. If you don't feed on the Word of God, you will not grow. Just as a body needs food and drink to grow physically, we need the Word of God to grow spiritually. Just as a body needs air to breathe, we need to commune with God in prayer. So that's number one on the list of elements of spiritual growth. Put in the right stuff. Number two, avoid things harmful to life and growth. Avoid things harmful to life and growth. If an infant doesn't have some kind of protection from infections, some kind of protection from diseases, he will not grow. Put this over into the plant realm. If you don't weed your garden, flower garden, vegetable garden, you're not going to get very much good growth and produce because the weeds will take all the sustenance. Well, the same thing is true in the Christian life. We have to guard ourselves against things that are harmful to life and growth. Turn over just two letters to 1 John chapter 2. After 1 Peter is 2 Peter, then 1 John chapter 2. John says here in verse 15, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, John is not talking about the world of people. We should love people. He's not talking about the world of creation or nature. We should appreciate, love this creation that God has has given as a testimony of his own power and his creative beauty and brilliance, etc. John is talking about the world system, the world's value system. Don't love this world's value system. Verse 16, for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but who, he who does the will of God abides forever. This is John's warning to us about taking in and feeding on the wrong things in life. Remember, this principle that we're on, this point, is we have to guard ourselves against things that are harmful to life and growth. And John tells us here, when our love is focused on clothes and shopping and entertainment and things and food and drink, there is not going to be spiritual growth. In verse 16, John mentions three specific aspects of what it means to love the world. He says, don't love the world, in verse 15. Then verse 16, three aspects of what he's talking about. First, he mentions the lust of the flesh. This world appeals to our flesh. This world says we ought to live for pleasure and enjoyment and recreation and relaxation and excitement. That's what we should live for, says the world. Now, there is nothing wrong with these things in and of themselves and in their proper context. But when these things become the things that drive us, 
and the things that we love and the things we think we deserve and the things we pursue at all costs, we are not going to grow spiritually. So there is the lust of the flesh, John mentions. Second, he mentions the lust of the eyes. This is a reference to the things of this world that appeal to our sight. Our world constantly tells us, especially in advertising, that the pursuit of things is the path to joy in life. You need this thing, the world tells us. You deserve this thing. This thing will make you happy. This thing will make your life complete. That is the message of this world. And sadly, many Christians buy into that. Their lives revolve around things and the pursuit of things and the purchase of things and the attaining of things. This world is very good at appealing to the lust of the eyes. Then the third specific that John mentions here is the pride of life. How are these different? Here's the distinction. The lust of the flesh appeals to our feelings and our desire for pleasure. The lust of the eyes appeals to our sight and our desire for things. The pride of life appeals to our ego and our desire for recognition. Let me say that again. The lust of the flesh appeals to our feelings and our desire for pleasure. The lust of the eyes appeals to our sight and our desire for things. The pride of life appeals to our ego and our desire for recognition. This world says, put yourself forward. Make people respect you. Don't let them treat you that way. You deserve better in life. These are prideful thoughts that are diametrically opposed to God's way of thinking. Now again, understand, beloved, there's nothing inherently wrong with being promoted in life. If you are a good worker or a good student or good athlete or whatever it is and you really work and excel, there's nothing wrong with being promoted or having success in life. There is nothing wrong with people respecting us or honoring us. The issue that John is addressing here is our focus and our hearts and our pursuit. If we believe we have to have those things and if we demand them, And if we make them our pursuit in life, we will definitely stunt spiritual growth. So the second element of spiritual growth is we need to avoid things harmful to life and growth. But there's another one, number three on our list. A third element of spiritual growth is one I've titled very simply, exercise. In the physical realm, as you know, it's not enough to have food and air. It's not enough to avoid that which is harmful. If a child is going to grow, there must be exercise. Babies learn to move around. Toddlers learn to walk. They learn to run. They they need to be active. There must be exercise. It's not enough just to give a little infant food, a child food and drink. If you strap him to the bed, he will not grow. In the spiritual realm, it's the same way. If we don't apply what we learn, if we don't put it into practice, if we don't uh, put into practice what we learn, just reading the Bible isn't going to cause us to grow. When it says to do something, we need to do it. When it tells us to pray, we need to pray. When it tells us to deal with sin in our lives, we need to deal with sinful attitudes or actions or words. When it tells us to encourage others or minister to others, 
We need to find ways to do it. Exercise is essential for growth. Back up just a few letters to Hebrews chapter 5. Prior to 1 Peter is James, and just prior to that, Hebrews chapter 5. Now I want you to notice this tremendously fascinating insight that the writer of Hebrews gives us here in verses 12 through 14. Hebrews chapter 5, the writer says this, For though by this time, by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. Now we might assume, well, the writer of Hebrews is saying you're not growing because you're not taking in the right things or you're not protecting yourself from what is harmful. No, that's not what he addresses. No. Notice verse 14. He says, but solid food belongs to those who are of full age, those who are mature. That is, watch this, those who by reason of use, those who by reason of practice, have, have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. The problem being addressed in this passage is not a lack of information. It's not a lack of Bible input. It is a lack of using the information, or to say it another way, a lack of putting into practice what we learn. The result, mark it well, beloved, the result of a failure to practice what we learn is stunted spiritual growth, just as this passage says. It's not enough for you to come here on Sunday and hear the Word of God, or even read your Bible during the week. If all you do is take it in and you never practice, you never use it, you never do anything about it, there will be stunted spiritual growth. So the third element of spiritual growth is exercise. Number four on our list. A fourth element of spiritual growth is rest. If a child doesn't get a sufficient amount of sleep, he will not grow properly. The same thing is true in the spiritual realm. You can read your Bible very diligently, and you can seek to avoid harmful influences, and you can try to practice what you are learning. But if you never learn to rest your heart and soul and mind on the Lord and in the Lord, you will not grow. Let me explain this one further. There are some zealous Christians, eager Christians, who never know peace in their hearts and lives. Their lives are frantic and their minds are frantic. They are constantly worrying about things they can't control. They are constantly fretting over things they will never understand. And they just won't let go of it. They are often in a state of perpetual anxiety. They never learn to rest in their secure position in Christ. They never learn to be anxious for nothing, as Philippians 4 instructs us in connection with prayer. They don't do what 1 Peter 5, 7 says when we are told, casting all your care on Him, for He cares for you. Beloved, there is a rest of faith that is essential for spiritual growth. Resting in the Lord and resting on the Lord. That is essential for spiritual growth. But let me add a fifth element of spiritual growth, and that is discipline. 1 Timothy 4.7 records Paul exhorting Timothy to discipline himself for the purpose of godliness. 
In 1 Corinthians 9, 27, Paul said, I discipline my body and bring it into subjection. You see, the point is that the things we have just been talking about, taking in the Word, avoiding damaging influences, putting into practice what we are learning, resting in the Lord, those things aren't things that we can do hit and miss, or sporadically, occasionally. There needs to be a consistency in life, and that involves discipline. So those are the elements of spiritual growth. Putting in the right stuff, avoiding damaging influences, putting into practice, exercising what we're learning, resting in the Lord, and discipline. But how do we know if we're growing? What are the evidences of spiritual growth? Let me give you a quick list from Scripture, but before I do, let me mention two false evidences of spiritual growth. I mention these because they are so common in the body of Christ today. False evidences of spiritual growth. Two of them I'll mention. Number one, comparing ourselves to others. You see, it's very easy for us to look at others in the family of God, in the body of Christ, and say, well, I'm doing better than that person, so I must be growing spiritually. That's a false evidence of spiritual growth. We can always find others who are not doing well and compare ourselves to them, but that is a false evidence of spiritual growth. It gives someone a false sense of security. Hey, I'm growing because look at that person. I'm not like that. I'm doing much better than he is or she is. That's a false evidence of spiritual growth. Here's the second one. Activity. Activity is a false evidence of spiritual growth. It's easy to assume that if we are very busy and very active, especially in church stuff, then that means that we are growing in our character and growing in our walk with Christ. There is a brief story in Luke 10 that debunks this view because Martha, you know the story of Mary and Martha. Martha was busy serving, 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 but Jesus gently rebuked her because her busy activity wasn't what she needed for growth. So that is an invalid evidence of spiritual growth. Those are two very common ones, comparing ourselves to others in activity. So what are some valid evidences of spiritual growth? Let me mention four. And I, I, there could be several others we could add to the list, but let me just mention four key ones. Number one, steadfastness. Look at 2 Peter chapter 3, where we concluded last Lord's Day. 2 Peter chapter 3. Verse 17, the Apostle Peter, as he was closing his letter, says, 2 Peter 3, 17, You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. But in contrast to that, he says, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and forever. Amen. Here in these two verses, Peter tells us to grow so that we won't fall from our steadfastness. So flip that around. Steadfastness is a sign of spiritual growth. The Christian who is fickle, easily depressed, easily frightened, easily discouraged is not steadfast and needs to grow because steadfastness is an evidence of spiritual growth. But here's the second one that we could add to the list. 
discernment. Discernment is an evidence of spiritual growth. In Ephesians 4, Paul exhorts us to grow. And then he says in Ephesians 4.14 that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine. Paul says grow so that you can be discerning. Being able to discern truth from error in doctrine is a sign of spiritual growth. The Christian who believes everything he hears on Christian TV or everything he reads in books is not very mature and needs to grow. Discernment is a mark of spiritual growth. Here's a third one. A third mark of spiritual growth or a third evidence of spiritual growth is love of the truth. Love of the truth. You will recall that the church at Corinth was said by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 3 to be very immature. We know that. Paul clearly states that in 1 Corinthians 3. He says, you are, you're carnal, you're like baby Christians, you're very immature. So what characterized the church at Corinth? And what did not characterize the church at Corinth? Well, we know from reading through the letter. For one thing, it was a church of people who were, who were enamored with that which is entertaining or spectacular and exciting. They were like the disciples who returned from their short-term mission and said to Jesus, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that exciting? Isn't that remarkable? And Jesus redirected their focus away from that fact because that isn't really the issue. They were just enamored with it because it was exciting to them. The demons are subject to us in your name. Their focus was on that which is entertaining or spectacular or exciting. And the Corinthians were the same way. The Corinthians, like many Christians today, were just focused on what is exciting. And so in today's culture, the Corinthians couldn't do this, but many Christians today just jump from event to event. They just find things to go to. They don't have any commitment to a church family or a church body. If, if another church is holding something exciting, well, we'll go there. That's exciting. And then we'll go here next week and we'll go there. It's just whatever is exciting or spectacular or interesting or entertaining. That was the Corinthians. So Paul wrote to straighten them out. And he told them throughout 1 Corinthians 14 especially that they ought to desire, as a church family, they ought to desire the gift of the proclamation of God's word over the showy gifts they were seeking. They had a wrong priority, a wrong focus. They should have had a love of the truth. They should have longed for the priority of God's word to be proclaimed. Furthermore, in 2 Corinthians 10.10, Paul had to admonish them because they were more interested, now catch this, more interested in Paul's appearance than they were in his message. Oh, how true that is today. People look at the preacher and say, man, he's really a neat dude, you know. He, he used to be a, a wrestler, you know, a, a, you know, or he used to be a football player. He, he was whatever, and they, they, they look at the appearance. They don't even care about the message. That was the Corinthians. More caught up in evaluating his appearance, his personality, than his message. Their immaturity was seen in their desire for the wrong thing, their focus on the wrong thing, because a love of God's truth is a mark of spiritual growth. The Corinthians did not love God's truth. They loved entertainment, excitement, something spectacular. Paul says, you're immature. You should love God's truth. That is an evidence of spiritual growth. Then the final element in our list of evidences of spiritual growth 
is a passion to know Christ. And this is the pinnacle. And I, that's why I saved it for last. A passion to know Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 3 as we close this morning. Philippians chapter 3. Verse 10, Paul described his own pressing desire for growth, his own pressing pursuit of growth. He says in verse 10, that I may know him. By the way, Paul already knew Christ. He said that back in verse 7 and 8. He says he gave up all the things he used to trust in just to know Christ. So he already knew Christ. He knew him relationally. He already had a relationship with Christ. But here he's saying, I want to know him more intimately, more deeply, more profoundly, that I may know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death. If by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. This is remarkable when you stop to realize that Paul wrote this 30-some years after he had become a Christian. So fast forward from the time he became a Christian, 30-plus years, and he says, I've not stopped pursuing, I've not stopped seeking, I've not stopped driving forward, and I haven't obtained, I, I haven't reached where I want to get to. That's incredible passion and drive. Not, brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but the, the one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind, and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. Why do you forget what's behind? Because if your past is bad, it can paralyze you. And if your past is good, it can cause you to coast. So forget the past. If your past is bad, forget about it. It's under the blood of Christ. Don't let it paralyze you. If your past is good, don't look back and say, Oh, I've been doing really well and coast. No, forget the past. This one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind. And reaching forward to those things which are ahead. I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. This great New Testament passage on spiritual growth begins with a statement of Paul's passion to know Christ deeper, more intimately, more profoundly. And the rest of this passage is dripping with the same passion. A passion to know Christ more. A passion to know Christ in a greater way is valid evidence of spiritual growth. And as I said a moment ago, I would suggest, I would submit to you, it's sort of the pinnacle aspect of an evidence of spiritual growth. So, we're commanded, beloved, we are commanded in Scripture to grow. Throughout the New Testament, we are commanded to grow. So let's look at our lives in light of what we have seen from God's Word this morning. Are you, ask yourself this question, are you growing spiritually? Are you really growing spiritually? If you are inclined to answer yes pretty quickly, say, oh yes, yes, I'm growing, then ask yourself the question, does the evidence back up my claim? Does the evidence in my life back up my claim? Is your life marked by steadfastness? discernment, love of the truth, 
and a passion to know Christ. Those are the valid evidences of the life of growth in a child of God. Let's bow together in closing. As we bow together in closing this morning, I just want to encourage you to think back through what we have seen from God's Word this morning. It's obvious that we are commanded to grow in Scripture. We are exhorted to grow. We are told to grow. The assumptions, the assumptions behind the, the, those exhortations are the assumption that we have life. So do you have life? Are you a Christian? Do you have spiritual life? Have you experienced the new birth, being born of God, born from above? Do you know Jesus Christ? If you don't, you can't grow. You will never grow spiritually. So if there's any doubt in your mind, any question, resolve that issue today. Humble yourself before God. Repent of sin. Turn to Christ in childlike faith. Receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And then if, as you contemplate growth, as a child of God, if you are a child of God, you know that. There's no question in your mind. You know Christ. You genuinely know Christ. Then think about the elements of spiritual growth. Are you, are you doing these things, putting in the right stuff, avo- avoiding things harmful, exercising, rest, discipline? Are those elements in your life And if you wonder if you're growing, then think about the evidences of spiritual growth. Steadfastness, discernment, love of the truth, a passion to know Christ. Those are valid evidences of growth. Not comparing ourselves with others, not activity, but those are the biblical evidences, some of the biblical evidences of spiritual growth. So however the Spirit of God has spoken to your heart this morning or prompted you in whatever way that is, I urge you, respond. Don't close up your Bible. Walk out of here unchanged. Respond. Do whatever you need to do to respond properly. Father, thank you for our time in your word this morning to look at this crucial subject of spiritual growth. It's throughout the pages of the New Testament. It's everywhere we turn, everywhere we look. We, are, we, we, we see the, the priority, the importance of spiritual growth, the exhortations to spiritual growth. And so we want to be growing, and we want to understand this from your word. And so I pray especially for those of us who do know Christ, that we would look at our lives, evaluate them, to see how we're really doing, honestly, objectively. And in closing, Father, I want to pray for anyone who is here with us, anyone who's hearing these words, who doesn't have new life and therefore cannot grow. May your Holy Spirit draw that man or woman or young person to come to know Jesus Christ today, to begin a life with him, to begin a life of growth with him and in him. And we pray all these things together in his precious and matchless name. Amen.